Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the world of Percy Jackson. In this episode we read chapters 7 through 8. Now in the previous chapter we read chapters 5 through 6 where Percy and Annabeth, Tyson and Grover all went into the battle of the labyrinth and on their way there they met Hera and they had to after meeting her they had to choose between the left and right corridor because Grover and Tyson actually sensed something from the right corridor, so they decided to go left. And now we will see whether they made the right decision in choosing the left corridor. So we now read chapter 7. Tyson leads a jailbreak. The good news is, the left tunnel was straight with no side exits, twists, or turns. The bad news is, it was a dead end. After sprinting a hundred yards, we ran into an enormous boulder that completely blocked our path. Behind us, the sounds of dragging footsteps and heavy breathing echoed down the corridor. Something, definitely not human, was on our tail. Tyson, I said. Tyson, I said. Can you? Yes! He slammed his shoulder against the rock so hard the whole tunnel shook. Dust trickled from the stone ceiling. Hurry, Grover said. Don't bring the roof down, but hurry. The boulder finally gave way with a horrible grinding noise. Tyson pushed it into a small room and we dashed through behind it. Close the entrance. We all got to the other side of the boulder and pushed. Whatever was chasing us wailed in frustration as we heaved the rock back into place and sealed the corridor. We trapped it, I said. Or trapped ourselves, Grover said. I turned. We were in a 20-foot square cement room, and the opposite wall was covered with metal bars. We tunneled straight into a cell. What in Hades? Ambit tugged on the bars. Oh, what in Hades? Ambit tugged on the bars. They didn't budge. Through the bars, we could see rows of cells in a ring around a dark courtyard. At least three stories of metal doors and metal catwalks. A prison, I said. Maybe Tyson can break. Shh, said Grover. Listen. Somewhere above us, deep sobbing echoed through the building. There was another sound, too. A raspy voice muttering something that I couldn't make out. The words were strange, like rocks in a tumbler. What's that language? I whispered. Tyson's eyes widened. Can't be. What? I asked. He grabbed two bars on her cell door and bent them wide enough for even a cyclops to slip through. Wait! Grover called, but Tyson was about to wait. We ran after him. The prison was dark, only a few dim fluorescent lights flickering above. I know this place, Ambit told me. This is Alcatraz. You mean that island near San Francisco? She nodded. My school took a field trip here. It's like a museum. It didn't seem possible that we could have popped out of the labyrinth on the other side of the country. But Annabeth had been living in San Francisco all year, keeping an eye on Mount Tamalpas just across the bay. She probably knew what she was talking about. Freeze, Grover warned. But Tyson kept going. Grover grabbed his arm and pulled him back with all his strength. Stop, Tyson, he whispered. Can't you see it? 
I looked where he was pointing, and my stomach did a somersault. On the second floor balcony across the courtyard was a monster more horrible than anything I'd ever seen before. It was sort of like a centaur, with a woman's body from the waist up. But instead of a horse's lower body, it had the body of a dragon, at least 20 feet long, black and scaly, with enormous claws and a barbed tail. Her legs looked like they were tangled in vines, but then I realized they were sprouting snakes, hundreds of vipers darting around constantly looking for something to bite. The woman's hair was also made of snakes, like Medusa's. Weirdest of all, around her waist, where the woman part met the dragon part, her skin bubbled and morphed, occasionally producing the heads of animals, a vicious wolf, a bear, a lion, as if she were wearing a belt of ever-changing creatures. I got the feeling I was looking at something half-formed, a monster so old it was from the beginning of time before shapes had been fully defined. It's her, Tyson whimpered. Get down, Grover said. We crouched in the shadows, but the monster wasn't paying us any attention. It seemed to be talking to someone inside a cell on the second floor. That's where the sobbing was coming from. The dragon woman said something in her weird, rumbling language. What's she saying? I muttered. What's the language? The tongue of the old times. Tyson shivered. What Mother Earth spoke to Titans and her other children be before the gods. You understand it? I asked. Can you translate? Tyson closed his eyes and began to speak in a horrible, raspy woman's voice. You will work for the master or suffer. Ambit shuddered. I hate it when he does that. Like eyes all Cyclops superhuman hearing and an uncanny ability to mimic voices. It was like he entered a trance when he spoke in other voices. I will not, sir, Tyson said in a deep, wounded voice. He switched to the monster's voice. Then I shall enjoy your pain, Briars. Tyson faltered when he said that name. I'd never heard him break character when I, he was mimicking somebody, but he let out a strangled gulp. Then he continued in the monster's voice. If you thought your imp first imprisonment was unbearable, you have yet to feel true torment. Think on this until I return. The dragon lady tromped toward the stairwell, vipers hissing around her legs like grass skirts. She spread wings that I hadn't noticed before, huge bat wings that she kept folded against her dragon back. She leaped off the catwalk and soared across the courtyard. We crouched lower in the shadows. A hot, sulfurous wind blasted my face as the woman, mo as the monster flew over. Then she disappeared around the corner. <sighs> Horrible, Grover said. I've never smelled any monster that strong. Cyclops' worst nightmare, Tyson muttered, murmured. Kampe. Who? I asked. Tyson swallowed. Every Cyclops knows about her. Stories about her scare us when we're babies. She was our jailer in the bad years. Abbott nodded. I remember now. When the Titans ruled, they imprisoned Gaia and Orano's earlier children. The Cyclops and the Hecatone carries. The Heca what? I asked. The hundred-handed ones, Chie said. They called him that because, well, they had a hundred hands. 
They were elder brothers of the Cyclops. Very powerful, Tyson said. Wonderful, as tall as the sky. So strong they could break mountains. Cool, I said. Unless you're mountain. Compe was the jailer, he said. She worked for Kronos. She kept our brothers locked up in Tartarus. Tortured them always until Zeus came. He killed Compe and freed Cyclops and Hundred-Handed Ones to help fight against the Titans in, a, in the big war. And now Compe is back, I said. Bad, Tyson summed up. So, who's in that cell? I asked. You said a name. Briars! Tyson perked up. He's a Hundred-Handed One. They're as tall as the sky and, yeah, I said, they break mountains. I looked up at the cells above us, wondering how something as tall as the sky could fit in a tiny cell, and why he was crying. I guess we should check it out, Ebbett said, before Compe comes back. As we approached the cell, the weeping got louder. When I first saw the creature inside, I wasn't sure what I was looking at. He was human-sized, and his skin was very pale, the color of milk. He wore a loincloth like a big diaper. His feet seemed too big for his body with cracked, dirty toenails, eight toes on each foot, but the top half of his but the top half of his body was the weird part. He made Janus look down right normal. His chest sprouted more arms than I could count, in rows, all around his body. The arms looked like normal arms, but there were so many of them, all tangled together, that his chest looked kind of like a forkful of spaghetti somebody had twirled together. Several of his hands were covering his face as he sobbed. Either the sky isn't as tall as it used to be, I muttered, or he's short. Tyson didn't pay any attention. He fell to his knees. Briars, he called. The sobbing stopped. Great hundred-handed one, Tyson said. Help us. Briars looked up. His face was long and sad, with a crooked nose and, a ba and bad teeth. He had deep brown eyes, I mean completely brown with no whites or black pupils, like eyes formed out of clay. Run while you can, Cyclops, Briar said miserably. I cannot even help myself. You are a hundred-handed one, Tyson insisted. You can do anything. Briars wiped his nose with five or six hands. Several others were fidgeting with little pieces of metal and wood from a broken bed. The way Tyson always played with spare parts. It was amazing to watch. The hands seemed to have a mind of their own. They built a toy boat out of wood, then disassembled it just as fast. Other hands were scratching at the cement floor for no apparent reason. Others were playing rock, paper, scissors. A few others were making ducky and doggy shadow puppets against the wall. I cannot, Briars moaned. Kabe is back. The Titans will rise and throw us back into Tartarus. Put on your brave face, Tyson said. Immediately, Briar's face morphed into something else. Same brown eyes, but otherwise totally different features. He had an upturned nose, arched eyebrows, and a weird smile like he was trying to act brave. But then his face turned back to what it had been before. No good, he said. My scarred face keeps coming back. How did you do that? I asked. Ambit elbowed me. Don't be rude. The hundred-handed ones have 50 different faces. It must be hard to get a yearbook picture, I said. Tyson was still entranced. It will be okay, Briars. We will help you, 
Can I have your autograph? Briar sniffled. Do you have 100 pens? Guys, Grover interrupted. We have to get out of here. Compe will be back. She'll sense us sooner or later. Break the bars. Yes, Tyson said, smiling proudly. Briars can do it. He is very strong. Stronger than Cyclops, even. Watch. Briars whimpered. A dozen of his hands started playing patty cake, but none of them made any attempt to break the bars. If he's so strong, I said, why is he stuck in jail? Ameth ribbed me again. He's terrified. She's whispered. She whispered. Compe imprisoned him in Tartarus for thousands of years. How would you feel? The hundred-handed one covered his face again. Briars, Tyson asked. What? What is wrong? Show us your great strength. Tyson, Abbott said. I think you better break the bars. Tyson's smile melted slowly. I will break the bars, he repeated. He grabbed the cell door and ripped it off its hinges like it was made of wet clay. Come on, Briars. Abbott said, let's get you out of here. She held out her hand. For a second, Briar's face morphed into a hopeful expression. Several of his arms reached out, but twice as many slapped them away. I cannot, he said. She will punish me. It's all right, Abbott promised. You fought the Titans before and you won, remember? I remember the war. Briar's face morphed again, furrowed bro and a pouting mouth. His brooding face, I guess. Lightning shook the world. We threw many rocks. The Titans and the monsters almost won. Now they are getting strong again. Compe said so. Don't listen to her, I said. Come on! He didn't move. I knew Grover was right. We didn't have much time before Compe returned. But I couldn't just leave him here. Tyson would cry for weeks. One game of rock, paper, scissors, I blurted out. If I win, you come with us. If I lose, we'll leave you in jail. Ambit looked at me like I was crazy. Briar's face morphed to doubtful. I always win rock, paper, scissors. Then let's do it. I pounded my fist to my palm three times. Briar's did the same with all 100 hands, which sounds like an army marching three steps forward. He came up with a whole avalanche of rocks, a classroom set of scissors, and enough paper to make a fleet of airplanes. I told you, he said sadly. I always... His face morphed to confusion. What is that you made? A gun, I told him, showing my finger gun. It was a trick Paul Blofus had pulled on me, but I wasn't going to tell him that. A gun beats anything. That's not fair. I didn't say anything about fair. Compe's not going to be fair if we hang around. She's going to blame you for ripping off the bars. Now come on! Briar sniffled. Demigods are cheaters. But he slowly rose to his feet and followed us out of the cell. I started to feel hopeful. All we had to do was get downstairs and find the labyrinth entrance. But then Tyson froze. On the ground floor, right below, Compe was snarling at us. The other way! We bolted down the catwalk. This time, Briars was happy to follow us. In fact, he sprinted out front, a hundred arms waving in panic. Behind us, I heard the sound of giant wings as Compe took to the air. She hissed and growled in her ancient language. But I didn't need a translation to know she was planning to kill us. We scrambled down the stairs, through a corridor, and past a guard station, out into another block of prison cells. Left, Embit said. I remember this from the tour. We burst outside and found ourselves in the prison yard. 
ringed by security towers and barbed wire. After being inside so long, the daylight almost blinded me. Tourists were miling, milling around, taking pictures. The wind whipped cold off the bay. In the south, San Francisco gleamed all white and beautiful. But in the north, over Mount Tamalpais, huge storm clouds swirled. The whole sky seemed like a black top spinning from the mountain where Atlas was imprisoned and where the Titan Palace of Mount Atreus was rising anew. It was hard to believe the tourists couldn't see the supernatural storm brewing, but they didn't give any hint that anything was wrong. It's even worse, Emmett said, gazing to the north. The storm's been ha- the storms have been bad all year, but that keep moving, Briarswell. She is behind us. We ran to the far end of the yard, as far from the cell block as possible. Comp is too big to get through the doors, I said, hopefully. Then the wall exploded. Tourists screamed as Compe appeared from the dust and rubble. Her wings spread out wide as the yard. She was holding two swords, long brown sh- scimitars that glowed with a weird greenish aura, boiling wisps of vapor that smelled sour and hot even across the yard. Poison! Grover yelled. Don't let those things touch you or, or we'll die, I guess. Well... After you shrivel slowly to dust, yes. Let's avoid the swords, I decided. Briars, fight! Tyson urged, grow to full size. Instead, Briars looked like he was trying to shrink even smaller. He appeared to be wearing his absolutely terrified face. Compe thundered toward us on her dragon legs, hundreds of snakes slithering around her body. For a second, I thought about drawing Riptide and facing her, but my heart crawled into my throat. Then Annabeth said what I was thinking run that was the end of the debate there was no fighting this thing we ran through the jail yard and out the gates of the prison the monster right behind us mortal screamed and ran emergency sirens began to blare we hit the wharf just as a tour boat was unloading the new group of visitors froze as they charges uh, saw us charging toward them followed by a mob of frightened tourists followed by i don't know what they saw through the mist but it could not have been good the boat grove asked too slow, Tyson said. Back into the maze. Only chance. We need a diversion, Ambit said. Tyson ripped a metal lamppost out of the ground. I will destroy Compe. You run ahead. I'll help you, I said. No, Tyson said. You go. Po- poison will hurt Cyclops. A lot of pain, but it won't kill. Are you sure? Go, brother. I will meet you inside. I hated the idea. I'd almost lost Tyson once before. And I didn't ever, I don't want, I didn't want to ever risk that again. But there was no time to argue and I had no better idea. Ameth, Grover, and I each took one of Briar's hands and dragged him toward the concession stands. While Tyson bellowed, lowered his pole, and charged Compe like a jousting knight. She'd been glaring at Briar's, but Tyson got her attention as soon as he nailed her in the chest with the pole, pushing her back into the wall. She shrieked and slashed with her sword, slicing the pole to shreds. Poison dripped in pools all around her, sizzling into the cement. Tyson jumped back as Compe's hair lashed and hissed, and the vipers around her legs darted their tongues in every direction. A lion popped out of the weird half-formed faces around her waist and roared. 
As we sprinted for the cell blocks, the last thing I saw was Tyson picking up a dippin' dot stand and throwing it at Kampe. Ice cream and poison exploded everywhere. All the little snakes in Kampe's hair dotted with tutti frutti. We dashed back into the jail yard. Can't make it. Briars huffed. Tyson is risking his life to help you. I yelled at him. You will make it. As we reached the door of the cell block, I heard an angry roar. I glanced back and saw Tyson running toward us at full speed, Compe right behind him. She was plastered in ice cream and t-shirts. One of the bear heads on her waist was now wearing a pair of crooked plastic Alcatraz sunglasses. Hurry! Ambit said, like I needed to be told that. We finally found the cell where we'd come in, but then the back wall was completely smooth. No sign of a boulder or anything. Look for the mark, Ambit said. There! Grover touched a tiny scratch and it became a a Greek L. The mark of Daedalus glowed blue and the stone wall grinded open. Too slowly, Tyson was coming through the cell block, Compe's swords lashing out behind him, slicing indiscriminately through cell bars and stone walls. I pushed briars inside the maze, then Annabeth and Grover. You can do it, I told Tyson, but immediately I knew he couldn't. Compe was gaining. She raised her swords. I needed a distraction, something big. I slapped my wristwatch and it spiraled into a bronze shield. Desperately, I threw it at the monster's face. Smack! The shield hit her in the face and she faltered just long enough for Tyson to dive past me into the maze. I was right behind him. Kampe charged, but she was too late. The stone door closed and its magic sealed us in. I could feel the whole tunnel shake as Kampe pounded against it, roaring furiously. We didn't stick around to play knock-knock with her, though. We raced into the darkness, and for the first time, and the last, I was glad to be in the labyrinth, to be back in the labyrinth. And that is the end of chapter 7. Now, we'll have to see what choices they now make to get into, to meet, to, you know, maneuver in, uh, uh, maneuver within the labyrinth. And so right after the break, we will read chapter 8 and find out what they have done inside the labyrinth. And I do apologize for my pronunciations. I don't mean to do my I know my pronunciations are a little bit bad so I apologize for that and I hope I didn't cause you any inconvenience but I will try and improve on the the on the pronunciations and until then we will have a break and return on from to to read chapter eight we visit the demon dude ranch And we are back from the ads, and now we'll read Chapter 8, We Visit the Demon Dude Ranch. We finally stopped in a room full of waterfalls. The floor was one big pit, ringed by a slippery stone walkway. Around us on all four walls, water tumbled from huge pipes. The water spilled down into the pit, and even when I shined a light, I couldn't see the bottom. Briar slumped against the wall. He scooped up water in a dozen hands and washed his face. This pit goes straight to Tartarus, he murmured. I should jump in and save you trouble. Don't talk that way, Ambit told him. You can come back to camp with us. You can help us prepare. You know more about fighting titans than anybody. I have nothing to offer, Briar said. I have lost everything. What about your brothers? Tyson asked. The other two must still stand stand tall as mountains. 
We can take you to them. Briar's expression morphed to something even sadder. His grieving face. They are no more. They're fa- they faded. The waterfalls thundered. Tyson stared into the pit and blinked tears out of his eyes. What exactly do you mean they faded? I asked. I thought monsters were immortal, like the gods. Percy, Grover said weakly. Even immortality has limits. Sometimes, sometimes monsters get forgotten and they lose their will to stay immortal. Looking at Grover's face, I wonder if he was thinking of Pan. I remember something Medusa had told us once. How her sisters, the other two Gorgons, had passed on and left her alone. Then last year, Apollo said something about the old god Helios disappearing and leaving him with the duties of the sun god. I never thought about it too much. But now, looking at Briars, I realize how terrible it would be to be so old. Thousands and thousands of years old and totally alone. I must go, Briar said. Kronos' uh, army will invade camp, Tyson said. We need help. Briars hung his head. I cannot, Cyclops. You are strong. Not anymore. Briars rose. Hey, I grabbed one of his arms and pulled him aside. Where the roar of the water would hide our words. Briars, we need you. In case you haven't noticed, Tyson believes in you. He risked his life for you. I told him about everything. Luke's invasion plan, the labyrinth entrance at camp, Daedalus' workshop, Kronos' golden coffin. Briars just shook his head. I cannot, demigod. I do not have a, I do not have a finger gun to win this game. To prove this, his point, he made 100 finger guns. Maybe that's why monsters fade, I said. Maybe it's not about why, what the mortals believe. Maybe it's because you give up on yourself. His pure brown eyes regarded me. His face morphed into an expression I recognized. Shame. Then he turned and trudged off down the corridor until he was lost in the shadows. Tyson sobbed. It's okay. Grover hesitantly patted his shoulder, which must have taken all his courage. Tyson sneezed. It's not okay. Go boy. He was my hero. He wanted to, I wanted to make him feel better, but I wasn't sure what to say. Finally, Annabeth stood and shouldered her backpack. Come on, guys. This pit is making me nervous. Let's find a better place to camp for the night. We settled in a corridor made of huge marble blocks. It looked like it could have been part of a Greek tomb, with bronze torch holders fastened to the walls. It had to be an older part of the maze, and Annabeth decided this was a good sign. We must be close to Daedalus' workshop, she said. Get some rest, everybody. We'll keep going in the morning. How do we know when it's morning? Grover asked. Just rest, she insisted. Grover didn't need to be told twice. He pulled a heap of straw out of his pack, ate some of it, made a pillow out of the rest, and was snoring in no time. Tyson took longer getting to sleep. He tinkered with some metal scraps from his building kit for a while. But whatever he was making, he wasn't happy with it. He kept dissembling the pieces. I'm sorry I lost the shield, I told him. You worked so hard to repair it. Tyson looked up. His eye was bloodshot from crying. Do not worry, brother, 
You saved me. You wouldn't have to if Briars had helped. You was just scared, I said. I'm sure you'll get over it. He's not strong, Tyson said. He's not important anymore. He heaved a big, sad sigh and closed his eye. The metal pieces fell out of his hand, still unassembled. Tyson began to snore. I tried to fall asleep myself, but I couldn't. Something about getting chased by a large dragon lady with poison swords made it real hard to relax. I picked up my bedroll and dragged it over to where Annabeth was sitting, keeping watch. I sat down next to her. You should sleep, she said. Can't. You doing all right? Sure. Firstly, leading the quest. Just great. We'll get there, I said. We'll find the workshop before Luke does. She brushed her hair out of her face. She had a smudge of dirt on her chin. And I imagined what she must have looked like when she was little, wandering around the court country with Lathalia and Luke, when she'd saved them from the mansion of the evil Cyclops when she was only seven. Even when she looked scared now, I knew she had a lot of guts. I just wish the quest was logical, she complained. I mean, we're traveling, but we have no idea where we'll end up. How can you walk from New York to California in a day? Space isn't the same in in the maze. I know, I know, it's just... She looked at me hesitantly. Percy, I was kidding myself. All that planning and reading? I don't have a clue where we're going. You're doing great. Besides, we never know what we're doing. It always works out. Remember Sir Key's Island? She snorted. (laughs) You made a cute guinea pig. And Waterland. Are you got us thrown off that ride? I got us thrown off? That was totally your fault. See, it will be fine. She smiled, which I was glad to see, but that smile faded quickly. Percy, what did Hera mean when she said you knew the way to get through the maze? I don't know, I admitted. Honestly. You tell me if you did. Sure. Maybe... Maybe what? Maybe if you told me the last line of the prophecy, it would help. Ambit shivered. Not here. Not in the dark. What about the choice Janice mentioned? Hera said, stop. Ambit snapped. Then she took a shaky breath. I'm sorry, Percy. I'm, I'm just stressed, but I don't... I've got to think about it. We sat in silence, listening to strange creaks and groans in the maze. The echo of stones grinding together as tunnels changed, grew, and expanded. The dark made me think about the visions I'd seen of Nico D'Angelo. And suddenly, I realized something. Nico is down here somewhere, I said. That's how he disappeared from camp. He found the labyrinth. Then he found a path that led down even further to the underworld. But now he's back in the maze. He's coming after me. Amber was quiet for a long time. Percy, I hope you're wrong, but if you're right... She stared at the flashlight beam, casting a dim circle on the stone wall. I had a feeling she was thinking about a prophecy. I never seen her look more tired. How about I take first watch, I said. I'll wake you if anything happens. Amber looked like she wanted to protest, but she just nodded slumped onto her bedroll and closed her eyes. When it was my turn to sleep, I dreamed I was back in the old man's labyrinth prison. It looked more like a workshop now. Tables were littered with measuring instruments, 
A forge burned red hot in the corner. The boy I'd seen in the last dream was stoking the bellows, except he was taller now, almost my age. A weird funnel device was attached to the forge's chimney, trapping the smoke and heat and channeling it through, the, through a pipe into the floor, next to a big bronze manhole cover. It was daytime. The sky above was blue, but the walls of the maze cast deep shadows across the workshop. After being in tunnels so long, I found it weird that part of the labyrinth could be open to the sky. Somehow, that made the maze seem like an even crueler place. The old man looked sickly. He was terribly thin, his hands raw and red from working. White hair covered his eyes, and his tunic was smudged with grease. He was bent over a table, working on some kind of long metal patchwork, like a swath of chainmail. He picked up a delicate curl of bronze and fitted it into place. Done, he announced. It's done. He picked up his project. It was so beautiful, my heart leaped. Metal wings constructed from thousands of interlocking bronze feathers. There were two sets. One still lay on the table. Daedalus stretched the frame, and the wings expanded to 20 feet. Part of me knew it could never fly. It was too heavy, and there'd be no way to get off the ground. But the craftsmanship was amazing. Metal feathers caught the light and flashed 30 different shades of gold. The boy left the bellows and ran over to sea. He grinned despite the fact that he was grimy and sweaty. Father, you're genius! The old man smiled. Tell me I have something I don't know, Icarus. Now hurry. It will take at least an hour to attach them. Come. You first, Icarus said. The old man protested, but the Ic- but Icarus insisted. You made them, father. You should get the honor of wearing them first. The boy attached a leather harness to his father's chest, like climbing gear, with straps that ran from his shoulder to his wrist. Then he began fastening on the wings, using a metal canister that looked like an enormous hot glue gun. The wax compound should hold for several hours, Daedalus said nervously as his son worked, but we must let it set first, and we would do well to avoid flying too high or too low. The sea would wet the wax seals. The sun's heat would loosen them, the boy finished. Yes, father, we've been through this a million times. One cannot be too careful. I have complete faith in your inventions, father. No one has ever been as smart as you. The other old man's eyes shone. It was obvious he loved his son more than anything in the world. Now I will do your wings and give mine a chance to set properly. Come. It was slow going. The old man's hands fumbled with the straps. He had a hard time keeping the wings in position while he sealed them. His own metal wings seemed to weigh him down, getting in his way while he tried to work. Too slow, the old man muttered. I'm too slow. Take your time, father. The boy said, the guards aren't due, due until... Boom! The workshop door shuddered. Daedalus had barred them from the inside with a wooden brace, but still they shook on their hinges. Hurry! Icarus said, boom, boom! Something heavy was slamming into the doors. The brace held, but a crack appeared in the left door. Daedalus worked furiously. A drop of hot wax spilled on Icarus's shoulder. This boy winced, but did not cry out. When his left wing was sealed to the straps, Daedalus began working on the right. We must have more time, Daedalus murmured. They're too early. 
We need more time for the seal to hold. It'll be fine, father. It'll be fine, Icarus said, as his father finished the right wing. Help me with the manhole. Crash! The door splintered and the head of bronze battering ram emerged through the breach. Axis cleared the dead de debris and two armed guards entered the room, followed by the king with the golden crown and the spear-shaped beard. Well, well, the king said with a cruel smile. Going somewhere? Daedalus and his son froze, their metal wings glimmering on their backs. We're living, we're leaving, Minos, the old man said. King Minos chuckled. It was curious to see how far you'd get on this little project before I dashed your hopes. I must say I'm impressed. The king admired their wings. You look like metal chickens, he decided. Perhaps we should pluck you and make a soup. The guards laughed stupidly. Metal chickens, one repeated. Soup. Shut up, the king said. Then he turned again to Daedalus. You let my daughter escape, old man. You drove my ma my wife to madness. You killed my monster and made me the laughingstock of the Mediterranean. You will never escape me. Icarus grabbed the wax gun and sprayed it at the king, who stepped back in surprise. The guards rushed forward, but each got a, a steam of hot wax in his face. The vent! Icarus yelled to his father. Get them! King Minos raged. Together, the old man and his son pried open the manhole cover, and a column of hot air blasted out of the ground. The king watched, incredulous, as the inventor and son shot into the sky on the bronze wings carried by the up updraft. Shoot them! The king yelled, but his guards had brought no bows. One threw his sword in desperation, but Daedalus and Icarus were already out of reach. They wheeled above the maze and the king's palace and zoomed across the city of Knossos and out past the rocky shores of Credi. Icarus laughed. Free, father, you did it! The boy spread his wings to their full limit and soared away on the wind. Wait! Daedalus called. Be careful! But Icarus was already out over the open sea, heading north and delighting in their good luck. He soared up and scared an eagle out of its flight path then plummeted toward the sea like he was born to fly, pulling out of a nosedive at the last second. His sandals skimmed the waves. Stop that, Daedalus called, but the wind carried his voice away. His son was drunk on his own freedom. The old man struggled to catch up, glidingly clumsily after his son. They were miles from Credi. Over deep sea, when Icarus looked back and saw his father's worried expression. Icarus smiled. Don't worry, father. You're a genius. I trust your handiwork. The first metal feather shook loose from his wings and fluttered away. Then another. Icarus wobbled in midair. Suddenly, he was shedding bronze feathers, which twirled away from him like a flock of frightened birds. Icarus! His father cried. Glide! Extend the wings! Stay as still as possible! But Icarus flapped his arms, desperately trying to reassert control. The left wing went first, ripping away from the straps. Father! Icarus cried, and then he fell. The wings stripped away until he was just a boy in a climbing harness and a white tunic. His arms extended in a useless attempt to glide. 
I woke with a start, feeling like I was falling. The corridor was dark, and the constant moaning of the labyrinth. I thought I could hear the anguished cry of Daedalus calling his son's name as Icarus. His only joy plummeted toward the sea, hundred feet below. There was no morning in the maze, but once everyone woke up and had a fabulous breakfast of granola bars and juice boxes, we kept traveling. I didn't mention my dream. Something about it really freaked me out, and I didn't think the others needed to know that. The old stone tunnels changed to dirt with cedar beams, like a gold mine or something. Ambit started getting agitated. This isn't right, she said. It should still be stone. We came to a cave where stalactites hung low from the ceiling. In the center of the dirt floor was a rectangular pit, like a grave. Grover shivered. It smells like the underworld in here. Then I saw something glinting at the edge of the pit, a foil wrapper. I shined my flashlight into the hole and saw a half-chewed cheeseburger floating in brown carbonated muck. Nico, I said. He was summoning the dead again. Tyson whimpered. Ghosts were here. I don't like ghosts. We've got to find him. I don't know why, but standing at the end of that pit gave me a sense of urgency. Nico was close. I could feel it. I couldn't let him wander around down here, alone except for the dead. I started to run. Percy! Annabeth called. I ducked into a tunnel and saw light up ahead. But by the time Annabeth, Tyson, and Grover caught up with me, I was staring at daylight streaming through a set of bars above my head. We were under a steel grate made out of metal pipes. I could see trees and blue sky. Where are we? I wondered. Then a shadow fell across the grate and a cow stared down at me. It looked like a normal cow except it was a weird color. Bright red like a cherry. I didn't know cows came in that color. The cow mooed, put one hoof tentatively on the bars, then backed away. It's a cattle guard, Grover said. A what? I asked. They put them at the gates of ranches so cows can't get out. They can't walk on them. How do you know that? Grover huffed indignantly. Believe me, if you had hooves, you'd know about cattle guards. They're annoying. I turned to Annabeth. Didn't Harris say something about a ranch? We need to check it out. Nico might be up there. She hesitated. All right, but how do we get out? Tyson solved that problem by hitting the cattle guard with both hands. It popped off and went flying out of sight. We heard a clang and a startled moo. Tyson blushed. Sorry, cow, he called. Then he gave us a boost out of the tunnel. We are on a ranch, all right. Rolling hills stretched to the horizon, dotted with oak trees and cactuses and boulders. A barbed wire fence ran from the gate in either direction. Cherry-colored cows roamed around, grazing on clumps of grass. Red cattle, Abbott said. The cattle of the sun. What? I asked. They're sacred to Apollo. Holy cows? Exactly, but what are they doing? Wait, Grover said. Listen. At first, everything seemed quiet, but then I heard it. The distant baying of dogs. The sound got louder. Then the underbrush rustled and two dogs broke through. Except it wasn't two dogs. It was one dog with two heads. It looked like a greyhound, long and snaky and sleek brown. 
but its neck veed into two heads, both of them snapping and snarling and generally not very glad to see us. Bad Jen is good dog, Tyson cried. Arf, Grover told it and raised a hand in greeting. The two-headed dog bared his teeth. I guess it wasn't impressed that Grover could speak animal. Then its master lumbered out of the woods, and I realized the dog was the least of our problems. He was a huge guy with stark white hair, a straw cowboy hat, and a braided white beard. Kind of like Father Time, if Father Time went redneck and caught totally jacked. He was wearing jeans and a a don't-mess-with-Texas t-shirt and a denim jacket with the sleeves ripped off so you could see his muscles. On his right bicep was a cross-swords tattoo. He held a wooden club about the size of a nuclear warhead with six-inch spikes bristling at the business end. Heal, Orthus, he told the dog. The dog growled at us once more just to make his feelings clear, then circled back to his master's feet. The man looked us up and down, keeping his club ready. What do we got here? He asked. Cattle rustlers? Just travelers, Abbott said. We're on a quest. The man's eye twitched. Half-bloods, eh? He started to say, how did you know? Abbott put her hand on my arm. I'm Annabeth, daughter of Athena. This is Percy, son of Poseidon, Grover the satyr, Tyson the cyclops... The man finished, yes, I can see that. He glowered down at glowered at me. And I know half-bloods because I am one, Sonny. I'm Urshan, the cowherd for, his, for this here ranch, son of Ares. You came through the labyrinth like the other one, I reckon. The other one? I asked. You mean Nico D'Angelo? We get a load of visitors from the labyrinth, Urshan said darkly. Not many ever leave. Wow, I said. I feel welcome. (coughs) The cowherd glanced behind him like someone was watching. Then he lowered his voice. I'm only going to say this once, demigods. Get back in the maze now before it's too late. We're not leaving, Ambeth insisted. Not until we see this other demigod, please. Yershin grunted. Then you leave me no choice, Missy. I've got to take you to see the boss. I didn't feel like we were hostages or anything. Yurishin walked alongside us with his club across his shoulder. Orthus, the two-headed dog, growled a lot and sniffed at Grover's legs and shot in the bushes once once in a while to chase animals. But Yurishin kept him more or less under control. We walked down a dirt path that seemed to go on forever. It must have been close to 100 degrees, which was a shock after San Francisco. Heat shimmered off the ground, insects buzzed in the trees. Before we'd gone very far, I was sweating like crazy. Flies swarmed us. Every so often, we'd see a pen of full of red cows or even stranger animals. Once we passed a coral where the fence was coated in asbestos. Inside, a herd of fire-breathing horses milled around. The hay in their feeding trough was on fire. The ground smoked around their feet, but the horses seemed tame enough. One big stallion looked at me and whinnied, columns of red flame billowing out out of his nostrils. wonder if it hurt his sinuses. What are they for? I asked. Yershin scowled. We raise animals for lots of clients. Apollo, Diomedes, and... 
others. Like who? No more questions. Finally, we came out of the woods. Perched on a hill above us was a big ranch house. All white stone and wood and big windows. It looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright, Abbott said. I guess she was talking about some architectural thing. To me, it just looked like the kind of place where a few demigods could get into serious trouble. We hiked up the hill. Don't break the rules, Yurishin warned as we walked up the steps to their front porch. No fighting, no drawing weapons, and don't make any comments about the boss's appearance. Why? I asked. What does he look like? Before Yurishin could reply, a new voice said, Welcome to the Triple G Ranch. The man on the porch had a normal head, which was a relief. His face was, we- face was weathered and brown from years in the sun. He had slick black hair and a black pencil m- mustache like villains that have in old movies. He smiled at us, but the smile wasn't friendly. More amused, like, oh boy, more people to torture. I didn't ponder that very long, though, because then I noticed his body. Or bodies. Yet three of them. Now... You'd think I would have gotten used to weird anatomy after Janice and Briars, but this guy had three complete people. His neck was connected to the middle chest like normal, but he had two more chests, one to either side, connected at the shoulders, with a few inches in between. His left arm grew out of his left chest, and the same on the right. So he had two arms, but four armpits, if that makes any sense. The chests all connected into one enormous torso, with two regular but very beefy legs. And he wore the most oversized pair of levies I'd ever seen. His chests each wore a different color. Western shirt, green, yellow, red, like a stoplight. I wondered how he dressed the middle chest since it had no arms. The cowherd, Yershin, nudged me. Say hello to Mr. Garion. Hi, I said. Nice chest, uh, ranch. Nice ranch you have. Before the three-bodied man could respond, Nico D'Angelo came out of glass doors onto the porch. Garion, I won't wait for... He froze when he saw us, and he drew his sword. The blade was just like I'd seen in my dream. Short, sharp, and dark as midnight. Garion snarled when he saw it. Put that away, Mr. D'Angelo. I ain't gonna have my guests killing each other. But that's... Percy Jackson, Garion supplied, and but Chase and a couple of their monster friends. Yes, I know. Monster friends? Grover said indignantly. That man is wearing three shirts, Tyson said, like he was just realizing this. They let my sister die. Nico's voice trembled with rage. They're here to kill me. Nico, we're not here to kill you. I raised my hands. What happened to Bianca was, don't speak her name. You're not even worthy. To, you're not worthy to even talk about her. Wait a minute. Ambit pointed at Garion. How do you know our names? The three-bodied man winked. I make it my business to keep informed, darling. Everybody pops into the ranch from time to time. Everyone needs something from old Garion. Now, Mr. D'Angelo, put that ugly sword away before I have Yershin take it from you. Yurishin sighed, but he hefted his spiky club. At his feet, Orthus growled. Nico hesitated. He looked thinner and paler than he had in the iris messages. I wonder if he'd eaten in the last week. His black clothes were dusty from traveling in the labyrinth, and his dark eyes were full of hate. 
He was too young to look so angry. I still remembered him as a cheerful little kid who played with Mytho Magic cards. cards. Reluctantly, he sheathed his sword. If you come near me, Percy, I'll summon help. You don't want to meet my helpers, I promise. I believe you, I said. Gary and Pat Nico's shoulder. There, we've all made nice. Now come along, folks. I want to give you a tour of the ranch. Gary had a trolley thing, like one of those kitty trains that take you around zoos. It was painted black and white in a cowhide pattern. The driver's car had a set of long horns stuck to the hood, and the horn sounded like a cowbell. I figured maybe this was the way he, how he tortured people. He embarrassed them to death riding around in the mobile. Nico sat in the very back, probably so he could keep an eye on us. Yurishin crawled in next to him with a spiked club and pulled his cowboy hat over his eyes like he was going to take a nap. Orthus jumped in the front seat next to Gary and began barking happily in two-part harmony. Ambit, Tyson, and Grover and I took the middle two cars. We have a huge operation, Gary and boast- boasted as the moonmobile lurched forward. Horses and cattle mostly, but all sorts of exotic varieties too. We came over hill and Ambit gasped. Hippolycryons? Hippolycryons. I thought they were extinct. At the bottom of the hill was a fenced-in pasture with a dozen of the weirdest animals I'd ever seen. Each had the front half of a horse and the back half of a rooster. Their rear feet were huge yellow claws. They had feathery tails and red wings. As I watched, two of them got into a fight over a pile of seed. They reared up on their back leg and whinnied and flapped their wings at each other until the smaller one galloped away, its rear bird legs putting a little hop in its step. Rooster ponies, Tyson said in amazement. Do they lay eggs? Once in a year, Garion grinned in the rearview mirror, very much in demand for omelets. That's horrible, Ambit said. They must be an endangered species. Garion waved his hand. Gold is gold, darling, and you haven't tasted the omelets. That's not right, Grover murmured, but Garion just kept narrating the tour. Now over here, he said, we have our fire-breathing horses, which you may have seen on your way in. They're bred for war, naturally. What war? I asked. Garion grinned slyly. Oh, whichever one comes along. And over yonder, of course, are our prize red cows. Sure enough, hundreds of the cherry-colored cattle were grazing the side of a hill. So many, Grover said. Yes, well, Apollo is too busy to see to them. Garion explained, so he subcontracts to us. We breed them vigorously because there's such a demand. For what? I asked. Garion raised an eyebrow. Meat, of course. Armies have to eat. You kill the sacred cows of the sun god for hamburger meat? Grover said. That's against the ancient laws. Oh, don't get so worked up, satyr. They're just animals. Just animals? Yes, and if Apollo cared, I'm sure he would tell us. If you knew, I muttered. Nico sat forward. I had I don't care about any of this, Garion. We had business to discuss, and this wasn't it. All in good time, Mr. D'Angelo. Look over here, some of my exotic game. The next field was ringed in barbed wire. The whole area was crawling with giant scorpions. Triple G Ranch, I said, suddenly remembering. Your mark was on the crates at camp. 
Quintus got his scorpions from you. Quintus, Gregarian mused. Short, gray hair, muscular swordsman? Yeah. Never heard of him, Garion said. Now over here are my prize stables. You must see them. I didn't need to see them because as soon as we got within 300 yards, I started to smell them. Near the banks of a green river was a horse coral the size of a football field. Stables lined one side of it. About a hundred horses were milling around in the muck. And when I mean, when I say muck, I mean horse poop. It was the most disgusting thing I'd ever seen. Like a poop blizzard had come through and dumped four feet of the stuff overnight. The horses were really gross from wading through it. And the stables were just as bad. It reeked like you would not believe. Worse than the garbage boats on the East River. Even Nico gagged. What is that? My stables, Garion said. Well, actually, they belong to Aegis, but we watch them over. We watch over them for a small monthly fee. Aren't they lovely? They're disgusting, Ambit said. Lots of poop, Tyson observed. How can you keep animals like that? Grover cried. Y'all get it on my nerves, Garion said. These are flesh-eating horses. See, they like these conditions. Plus, you're too cheap to have them cleaned. Yurishan mumbled from under his hat. Quiet! Garion snapped. All right, perhaps the stables are a bit challenging to clean. Perhaps they do make me nauseous when the wind blows the wrong way. But so what? My clients still pay me well. What clients? I demanded. Oh, you'd be surprised how many people would pay for a flesh-eating horse. They make great garbage disposals. Wonderful way to terrify your enemies. Great at birthday parties. We rent them out all the time. You're a monster, Ambit decided. Garen stopped the moonmobile and turned to look at her. What gave it away? Was it the three bodies? You have to let these animals go, Grover said. It's not right. And the clients you keep talking about, Ambit said. You work for Kronos, don't you? You're supplying his army with horses, food, whatever they need. Garion shrugged, which was very weird since he had three sets of shoulders. It looked like he was doing the wave all by himself. I work for anyone with gold, young lady. I'm a businessman, and I sell them anything I have to offer. He climbed out of the moonmobile and strolled toward the stables as if enjoying with fresh air. It would have been a nice view, with the river, the trees, and and the hills and all, except for the quagmire of horse muck. Nico got out of the back car and stormed over to Garion. The coward Yurishin wasn't as sleepy as he looked. He hefted his club and walked after, oh, after Nico. I came here for business, Garion, Nico said, and you haven't answered me. Mm. Garion examined a cactus. His left arm reached over and scratched his middle chest. Yes, you'll get a deal, all right. My ghost told me you could help, he said. You could guide us to the soul we need. Wait a second, I said. I thought I was the soul you wanted. Nico looked at me like I was crazy. You? Why did I want you? Bianca's soul is worth a thousand of yours. Now, can you help me, Garion, or not? Oh, I imagine I could, the rancher said. Your ghost friend, by the way, where is he? Nico looked uneasy. He can't form in broad daylight. It's hard for him, but he's around somewhere. Garion smiled. I'm sure. Minos likes to disappear when things get... And difficult. Minos? I remembered the man I'd seen in my dreams with the golden crown, the pointed beard, and the cruel eyes. 
You mean that evil king? That's the ghost who's been giving you advice? It's none of your business, Percy. Nico turned back to Garion. And what do you mean about things getting difficult? Well, you see, Nico. Can I call you Nico? No. You see, Nico, Luke Castellan is offering very good money for half-bloods, especially powerful half-bloods. And I'm sure when he learns your little secret who you really are, he'll pay very, very well indeed. Nico drew his sword, but Eurition knocked it out of his hand. Before I could get up, Orthus pounced on my chest and growled his faces an inch away from mine. I would stay in the car, all of you, Garion warned, or Orthus will tear Mr. Jackson's throat out. Now, Yershin, if you would be so kind, secure Nico. The cowherd spit into the grass. Do I have to? Yes, you fool. Yershin looked bored, but he wrapped one huge arm around Nico and lifted it up like a wrestler. Pick up the sword, too, Garion said with a distaste. There's nothing I hate worse than Stygian iron. Yurishan picked up the sword, careful not to touch the blade. Now, Garion said cheerfully, we've had the tour. Let's go back to the lodge, have some lunch, send an Iris message to our friends in the Titan army. You fiend! Abbott cried. Garion smiled at her. Don't worry, my dear. Once I've delivered Mr. D'Angelo, you and your party can go. I don't interfere with quests. Besides, I've been paid well to give you safe passage, which does not, I'm afraid, include Mr. D'Angelo. Paid by whom? Emmett said, what do you mean? Never you mind, darling. L- darling, let's be off, shall we? Wait, I said, and Orthus growled. I stay perfectly still so he wouldn't tear my throat out. Gary, you're, you said you're a businessman. Make me a deal. Gary narrowed his eyes. What sort of deal do you deal? Do you have gold? I've got something better. Barter. But Mr. Jackson, you've got nothing. You could have him clean the stables, Eurasian suggested innocently. I'll do it. If I fail, you get all of us. Trade us all to Luke for gold. Assuming the horses don't eat you, Garion observed. Either way, you get my friends, I said. But if I succeed, you've got to let us all go, including Nico. No! Nico screamed. Don't do me any favors, Percy. I don't want your help. Garion chuckled. Percy Jackson, those stables haven't cleaned and been cleaned in a thousand years. Though it's true I might be able to sell more stable space if all that poop was cleared away. So what have you got to lose? The rancher hesitated. All right, I'll accept your offer, but if you have to get it done by sunset. If you fail, your friends get sold and I get rich. Deal. He nodded. I'm going to take your friends with me, back to the lodge. We'll wait for you there. Eurishan gave me a funny look. It might have been sympathy. He whistled, and the dog jumped off me, and onto Annabeth's lap. She yelped. I knew Tyson and Grover would never try anything as long as Annabeth was a hostage. I got out of the car and locked eyes with her. I hope you know what you're doing, she said quietly. I hope so, too. Garion got behind the driver's wheel. Eurishan hauled Nico into the back seat. Sunset, Garion reminded me. No later. He laughed at me once more, sounded his cowbell horn, and the moonmobile rumbled off down the trail. And that is the end of chapter eight. Uh, I will. I wonder what will happen, you know, to Percy. I really want him to finish that deal and actually get Nico out as well. And I hope Percy convinces Nico not to listen to the ghost advice because it's King Mino, and he's. He was so mean to Daedalus and his son 
that I hope Percy does convince him not to listen to that ghost advice, assuming that they get out, which I hope they do. But we'll have to wait until next week to find that out. And until then, stay safe and stay out of boredom. And I do, again, apologize for my pronunciations. I hope it doesn't inconvenience you. And I still hope you enjoyed this podcast as much as you have been before. So stay safe and stay out of boredom.